Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hi, everybody. I have quite a few teachers in my family and extended family. And it only struck me yesterday that I've always felt that um, in this country teachers aren't appreciated enough. And it, it struck me how much more difficult it would be to teach any of the creative arts in schools. Um, and it was when I was there, that, I, and I was good friends with drama and art teachers. Both their offices were kind of like a sanctuary for me sometimes. Uh, and I remember how hearing, overhearing their conversations about getting maintaining relevance in, in their school, let alone the broader syllabus. And when you consider the way arts funding is being cut across this country, not only for institutions, but for visual arts education, most of the university art schools in New South Wales, my home state, have been shut down since I studied. There's sort of two left now. And there was something like nine when I was there. Most of the TAFE art schools have been shut down. So for your students to move forward and go on if they want to study art, it's becoming more and more perilous and more and more difficult. As Margaret Ollie always used to say, all power to the brush. <laughs> but the brush is in your hands for the future of artists and curators and gallery staff and people telling the story of who we are and trying to define our identity. This work, the first work that Lisa chose, and it's worth knowing that the house lights are on at the moment. So an interesting thing for students, and you won't get to see, they won't get to see the change, but the, the house lights will go down in about five minutes, and you'll see the way the show is, is supposed to be lit, not with all the house lights on to, to let everyone come in, security come in and start getting ready for the opening of um, the public. <clears throat> this work here um, was made in the third work across on the right. I am... Um, I had very beautiful handwriting at school and I also used to draw that, that devil on the front of all my friends' school diaries at a Catholic boys' school in northwestern Sydney um, after Brother Luke, who used to flog the shit out of me in Year 7, told me that if I listened to ACDC's Highway to Hell again, I would go to hell. Um, at the same time, I was called into the headmaster's office and there was about 20 letters from all different parents saying their child was sick from school in the same handwriting which <laughs> happened to be my handwriting. <laughs> don't tell your students that, or your headmasters, and I denied it, and, um, and he let me go. But I used to draw this devil figure, and it, this work was made as one, as separate works, but with the idea of an animation, that you go from one side to the other, with two very most famous portraits of Cook, Captain Cook in the middle, morphing from the devil to Cook, through to me, I always have felt that if you tell a story that can attract quite negative attention, that the fact that you're calling Captain Cook anything near the devil, it's not that, it's about an idea, and art is meant to be about ideas. You should be able to say anything if you use art, but there are people in our community like Andrew Bolt who don't agree with that, that I'm the new radical face of the left-wing crazy madness. Um, but if, if you put yourself in there, it's always harder to criticise what I'm saying, because if I'm saying cookies, then I agree that I probably am as well. Um, remembering that I feel, I've always said, my blood is pretty much 100% Irish, um, white, and I'm Australian. It's a real mix, and there's works through the next room um, that, that explore that more. So this work also includes three sculptural works by Ben, and uh, 
Don't read, don't, don't uh, listen to everything you read. We read a review this morning that spoke about Ben's exhibition not having any sculpture. <laughs> We're like, hmm. I'd walk through the show with her. <laughs> the cages reference Joseph Banks and the cages that he commissioned to be made for his explorations in Australia. Cages that um, held birds but only for a short period of time because Banks would write in his journal the kind of quandary that Australian birds didn't like to be kept in cages and in fact died in cages. So there are a selection of sculptural works that, and you'll see one as we enter the next space, that all speak to the painting practice. Ben works across many mediums, but certainly this exhibition is a celebration of Ben Quilty as a painter. As well as the Inhabit body of work, which is in the gallery's collection, and you'll notice the aerosol drawing that Ben and Tom Reddit did underneath the work, you'll also know that there are early works, and it was important, I guess, to just plant the seed to bridge to the familiar. Ben is known broadly for his Tiranas. They were the first subjects. Yeah, everyone's nodding. You don't even need me to finish the sentence. He's known through that work. So it was an important bridge. What's also important about those works is that they sow the seed for this exploration of identity and particularly masculine identity that was important to commence at this point in the show so that we can continue to thread through. Let's step into the next space together. You're probably going to make a liar of me. We'll see what happens. But when it does go down, you'll love it. It'll go... Uh, there's only one work on paper in the exhibition. <laughs> you didn't lie. I didn't lie. <laughs> if it didn't go down, someone was going to get sacked. <laughs> Not you, I mean. You were just sacked whoever <laughs> proved you wrong. Naturally. Naturally. <laughs> Experiencing the lights going down is really just you, you know, us, in a sense, revealing the theatrics of exhibition making because you will have noticed, you know, you could read the walls all the way up. The lilac was kind of one colour through and now what's happened, of course, is that there's all of this tonal modulation. The floor has disappeared and the sculptures are casting shadows. Um, I think students are inherently interested in the art of making exhibitions. And as Ben said, as art, as art educators, you're not just training the future artists, you're act actually training the future industry. And that includes curators and includes other arts administrators. So we, will, we can talk a little bit, if you like, at some point about the exhibition, because I think there are some noteworthy things around the placement of works and the colour of the walls that your students will immediately pick up on, even if they are not familiar with Ben's work, they'll start to read the space and read the room. We're going to start by talking about the only work on paper in the exhibition uh, and also its relationship to this sculpture. Mm, this, um, it's worth, oh, you just made me think too, that ch or most children love to curate in their own bedroom. It's their private space, the mm. posters they put on the wall, the objects they have, mm. and that is curating. Mm. And if they play with a lamp, the way the shadows work on a lamp, it's a great place to talk 
about that work. Yeah, um, right. Also remembering that Lisa is the curator of this show and every single decision made, including the works, I mean, it was a conversation, but Lisa, I trust her inherently, she chose the work, she chose the wall colour, she chose the way you move through the exhibition. And there's such little nuances that, that, you, that a lot of people won't notice, they'll just be taken into the exhibition. But the, the whole show has a higher height line, uh, eye line than normal. And I, as soon as I walked in, I thought, the works are quite high. And I said, Lisa, everything's a bit high. And she said, yep, you've, I've gone 20 centimetres higher than the normal eye line that she uses. The eye line is our average height, the middle of the work. Um, and, and by the end, you'll see why. It's a brilliant device to help you read the exhibition as you move through it. This work here was made in 2010. I had kept all my schoolboy trophies. There was a lot of most improves and encouragement <laughs> awards. <laughs> and um, I don't know why you think that's funny. I was a... <laughs> Um, and uh, this work was really in response to after fi having finished school going to my 18th birthday party and realising that there was one initiation ceremony for me and that was a drunken piss party at my 18th birthday party. The next morning wake up as a voting adult. I mean all young boys coming into adulthood really that discussion is so poignant for them to understand how ridiculous it is that there is no more for them, that that is it, and that they are then waking up the next morning with the full weight of adult responsibility on their shoulders. They can vote and they're hungover. It's absurd. <laughs> I became intrigued by 19, I was studying Aboriginal culture and history and learnt that m most Indigenous young men were initiated, and I've talked to Vincent Namajira, who's the great-grandson of Albert in this painting, Vincent's become a friend, thank you to Lisa who encouraged our relationship and friendship. 13 years of initiation, physical, demanding, um, conceptual initiation so that the boys become men in a healthy, rounded way. I, I had no, I wasn't in any doubt as to why my friends and myself behaved so appallingly after our 18th going forward to round 26. Um, because we were lost and the car, the car was often a site of self-initiation, sitting together in a space that's designed like a cinema, if you imagine the windscreen as a moving picture, mm. an incredibly dangerous moving picture if you're high and drunk, as so many young men often are in that circumstance. So this painting is called the Encouragement Award. It's too heavy to lift above your head, almost too heavy to lift at all, and the idea was that it's the real notion of giving someone a trophy, that those plastic trophies and no, no, there's no sense of proper initiation of actually rewarding young men for good behaviour. We reward them for winning a sporting game or trying hard in a sporting game, but your life's lessons, your life's journey demands much bigger lessons for initiation to become a good, rounded young man. You may have already picked up on a couple of tricks or a couple of abiding kind of devices in Ben's work. One is this idea of the doubling and the sculpture repeats or mirrors some imagery that's also in this work on paper. 
It was important to place this work on paper here. It was made in Spain and it comments on our history and our legacy, the legacy of death, but it's also a raw shark of sorts. I mean, it's literally not a raw shark, clearly, but it is so symmetrical and it preempts the panel painting that Ben began to do and is present in the rest of this space. The doubling continues and in fact there's a very direct relationship between this portrait of Albert Namatjira and the budgie and this work here and that both were made in response to Ben's questioning around the lines in the national anthem, particularly the line about us being young and free because to paraphrase you, if you were to ask Vincent Namatjira, he would claim, he would of course argue that his people are neither of those things. So the, this room opens up to focus on the raw sharks. And they're, they're particularly interesting because when Ben started to make them, I think the world in a sense was a little bit, well the art world was a little bit stunned because he'd chosen to annihilate or destroy the very thing for which he was celebrated. And this idea of kind of the, the tension between creation and destruction runs through your veins and it runs through your practice. And so he would, for instance, the skull that's up, if you all just turn around, you could probably still hear me, um, the skull that's up hung high has those beautiful gelato-like swathes of paint. You know, Ben's work was described in terms which were about a sort of sensory engagement with paint. And then he started to squash destroy and annihilate his paint surface in order to create a new surface. And that was really out of a, an, a, a desire to engage you, the viewer, and also to, to ask you to make you complicit in a kind of shared history, I suppose. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I've always felt that, that, or not always, when I was at school and just after school, I was making paintings of the bush behind my parents' house. Um, but really starting to realise that there was a whole history of humanity on, on that site. I remember reading Kate Grenville's book, The Secret River, and then being intrigued about, I grew up in that area, about how she made it and read the making or the finding of, what was it called? The finding of the secret river, making yeah. of the secret river. Yeah, making, yeah. And she, this extraordinary passage where she said she camped on her own in the bush and she said the place was filled with noise throughout the night mm. and then suddenly realising there was one noise missing, the noise of singing and human voices mm. um, right across the country. Um, mm. That's an incredibly poetic and devastating thought when you think how quiet we all are at night. They would always sing, probably every night, singing was such a fundamental part of their lives as was making art. But I, I realised that making quickly found that I, there was an awkwardness for me to make landscape paintings and not acknowledge that history. Impossible, particularly after reading The Secret River, I have to say, that that whole landscape changed instantly. I already knew the darkness, but I, she put form in my imagination to what that was about. And I'm, there's, I think that shame is a, is a wasted emotion, as is anger, but I think that to confront and to acknowledge and then to commemorate places like these, from these three works here, which are all about sites of indigenous frontier violence. Um, I think that's the least that, that we can do to bring those topics to the front of discussion and remembering that there's been a real pushback, particularly in past governments, the, the idea of a black armband history. 
that, that we should not acknowledge the dark parts of our history, that there, was, that there were historians who completely denied that there was any frontier violence when it has been so systematically recorded for so many years. I studied Aboriginal culture and history in 93 and at that time through Monash University in Melbourne, the course reader was all of the massacres that had been recorded, a heavy tome of a book of a, a course reader and at that time it was very political. The university was making a point that they were going to educate people in the face of that denialism about the actual facts of what happened uh, and that really drove me not only to wonder about the people who wanted to forget that and why they did but also to understand those people. The Guardian just in the last week have published some work that Newcastle University and probably Monash as well have been doing for some time and that is a map of massacres and David Ma was describing it yesterday, I haven't had a chance to look at it myself yet, it's referenced in your education resource but I believe you can kind of travel through time on that map. In this room you travel through time and we experience a massacre on Kimberley country for the Gidja people over here on the left hand side, a massacre that occurred in the early part of the 20th century. On the right hand side or the northern wall, we travel to Gundungara country in the Southern Highlands, not far from where Ben lives. So we've just traversed the entire continent and there we travel to the site of a massacre that occurred 1860s, Ben, is that right? No. The, the, you're in her injury? Oh, no, no. Gundagara, uh, 1860s. 1860s. Yeah. And then more recently, once again, a 20th century story, the story of Irinirinji, which is a story of a retribution, uh, a retribution from Anangul because a white dingo scalper had been defiling a sacred and important water source. So we've, we've come back to South Australia with that particular painting. I think, I mean, if you could put your hand up if you're a secondary educator, that would help me get a sense, us get a sense. Great. I, I actually think the Rorschach technique, but the idea of the kind of accident of paint and art making is a very productive methodology for you. I'm not suggesting that you're all going to go back and make Rorschachs tomorrow in the classroom, but what the works do is just allow for a slippage of meaning and materiality that I think is really helpful for students because they get so stuck in the way that they think they need to make images, the way they think they need to work. Yeah, I mean, really it's going back to being a tiny little boy and remembering that that extraordinary moment, the first time you feel that you have control over a medium when you make a squashy with a piece of paper and open it back up and it's a perfect geometrical shape and you watch any child's eyes do that when if they haven't done it before, it's a magical thing to do, mm. really, that's, my kids just call these squashy paintings. <laughs> Rorschach was using them, this really interesting combined history, uh, Rorschach started using inkblot therapy really in the 1920s as a way of treating psychoanalytic um, states. But at the same time, the very same time, the surrealists were using decalcomania as they call it. And decalcomania is where you print paint or a medium onto a surface and then imagine what it's communicating to you. So you've got these parallel tales, one an art history tale of surrealism and an ultimate infinite invention and the other of the, the idea of paranoia and uh, delusional states being able to be diagnosed in paint.
We go into the next room. So um, here we meet the Ben Quilty that I would argue the, the country met. It was through the Afghanistan work that Ben gained significant public attention and probably stepped out of being quite well known in the art world to being quite well known across the country. It was a brave act in some ways, although there had been a history of brave, brave acts of the Australian government inviting artists onto the battlefield to make work and to respond. So in 2011, Ben travelled to Tarankot, Kandahar and Kabul to uh, spend time with the Australian Defence Forces and the body of work that you are experiencing with us now came out of that experience. Do you want to... What do you want to do here? Do you want to talk about Kandahar? Well, the first work Ben made was this painting here. Mm. Yeah, I think it's um, worth considering and for students to know that there's always complexities as an artist to go into any circumstance. You know, with Indigenous people, you need to work with a reconciliation group. You need to have people's permission. I'm sort of telling someone else a story, although I'm not representing the people directly, but I'm telling, in my mm. opinion, my story too, my, my forebears' story, the people that came before me, uh, and with the same thing here, that you are telling very directly, very confronting stories about other people. When I first said that I was going, I had one friend in a musician, well-known musician, say, I don't think you should go, Benny. I think it's your, your participation is inherently pro-war. But the difference between a visual artist and a musician is that a musician creates and then performs, and we just create. And we are able to actually sit back for as long as it takes. And with this commission, I was given as long as it took. It took over 18 months to actually consider what it was that I'd seen and then respond to it. And when you look back at the War Art Artist Residency, one of the first was, um, um, what's his name, at the Battle of the Somme? Streeton. Streeton, who made something mm. like 100 paintings from mm. his time during the Battle of the Somme, on the f first day that he arrived, 40,000 British troops died in one day. Um, he responded, he, they wouldn't let him go too close. He sat on a hill back and you can feel the earth moving, the horizon detonating and the horror of what he witnessed. And that is, in my opinion, entirely anti-war and it remains a very mm. poignant, um, depiction of mm. the futility and stupidity and destruction of the human race at our own hands. Um, I didn't know what to do after I came home. The first painting I made was this painting here called Kandahar. 
because in Kandahar, I saw the worst of humanity. I was told to wear a rape whistle. I was given a, a, a briefing everywhere. They do briefings every five minutes. It's absurd. If you haven't read Catch-22, it sums up that place. And I was there. The, they, they told me in the briefing that I was to listen for a, a, a warning signal that sounds out over the town. But the whole 30,000 people airbase is run by diesel generators so I couldn't hear anything except the constant drone of a thousand diesel generators and aircraft landing and taking off 24 hours a day. I was also told to wear this whistle because a week before a young Russian unarmed contractor was raped by five men with American accents. So it was a bizarre experience just having had that, that first briefing and then to walk through this place and realise the, the insanity of what war is, what a place like that is. And that, I made a drawing, which Lisa's seen, of a little squiggly weird thing, which was almost the emotion that I felt, on top of a very beautiful, expansive, enormous, pale mauve landscape of huge mountains. Uh, and that's the painting that came straight out. But there's sort of only one of them. You can't keep making that. And the next step was to get these men, and this is one of the first paintings I made, of Shane Mackay into the studio. This painting actually, I entered halfway through the show of getting these young men and women into the studio who I'd met in Afghanistan. I entered this in the Archibald and it was hung, which was very exciting. I really liked this. It's, there's something about me finding my way. This was much later and sort of more striking. But this was literally a painting of a young man who found the pose, who told me about a horrific uh, experience he'd had lying on his back on his equipment for 16 hours behind a very low mud brick wall while people were firing at him and no one could find where the bullets were coming from with another man who halfway through that was hit by an AK-47 round that hit him below the testicles and it didn't come out. And Shane then had to call in air support and get this friend of his out, which then, after landing under fire and taking him away, he then spent another eight hours there not knowing what had happened to that young man. And these are questions I asked. I said, what, what did this young man say? What was he saying to you after he was shot? And he just said over and over and over again, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. So, and this was the first one I made of Shane. When it got into the Archibald, it was very badly reviewed by another reviewer, although, you know, I, I'm not going to use his name, you don't need to hear it, it's a waste of your ear holes. <laughs> and Shane rang and said, um, have you read this review in the Melbourne newspaper? I said, yeah. And he said, do you, do you, who, do you know this man? I said, no, no, not really. Why, Shane? He said, do you want me to get him? So I realised I have a very heavily armed force to back me up with every bad review and I haven't had another bad review since. <laughs> no, that's not true. I've had plenty. <laughs> and no they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the Ben's capacity to kind of bring things home, I think, is one of the key characteristics of his practice. 
So he was literally bringing those experiences home, but also making sense of them for us. And he does that through his subjects, but also through himself. And we chose this image here as the key image, um, in spite of the marketing team here at the Art Gallery of South Australia's advice <laughs> that this was much too harrowing an image. But it's such a potent painting, and it's a painting that, like many of Ben's paintings, has had several lives because I actually saw when we were prepping for the show an image of this with a very different background. Mm. And to me, that's also something worth sharing to you as educators because these works are often, thank God they leave the studio because otherwise you'd be constantly repainting them. They're never finished if they're unsafe if they're in the studio in a way. They're kind of never finished. So I, I think, you know, this work initially, the black ground came later, didn't it? It did. But, and, it, and it's good to have, I mean, it, to, you, you guys have what we had in New South Wales, a visual arts process diary, and, my, and, it's, and I understand why students need it because you don't have access to a studio, but really a visual arts process diary, in my opinion, is, your, is a studio, is a student studio, and it's private. And that's the hardest thing, I think, for, for you to teach in high school because you're in a group of, of your peers and they all want to look at each other's drawings and it's the fundamental thing that my studio is very private. So, and the longer I can keep paintings for, the more I can work out if they are resolved and finished. And this painting, I just wasn't happy with and then when I finally realised what was wrong with it, and I can't even remember now what it was, but I covered a lot of the background up and made it just a dead black uh, and the painting was made just after I returned from Afghanistan. And self-portraiture is a good thing for st all students, no matter what the age, to turn the mirror on yourself and stare at yourself and teach about the, the absurdity of us, of who we are, that I have no hair growing in these funny spots here, you know, that we have eyebrows and eyelashes. What, what, what is it for? We've sort of broken with evolution. We're hopeless, really, because we've been living in caves and using fire to protect ourselves and using things outside of our body to protect ourselves and to survive. And we've become quite unique, extraordinary bodies and absurd bodies and self-portraiture is something in my studio if I have no other ideas or no, ob no subject or object just to turn the mirror on yourself, which is actually what's in the education room now. Inspired by Ben's son, Joe, who's, who's 13 and, and paints beautifully. Um, the self-portrait's kind of an abiding thread. There are lots of self-portraits. There's one over here that was self-portrait, the executioner, that was made the day after Myron and Andrew Chan were shot. And it speaks directly to that earlier portrait of Myron Sukumaran. You've probably seen a lot of portraits of Myron Sukumaran, but most of them are made were made by Myron himself because Ben gave... Myron, that same advice that he's just given you and your students. And so this is one of just two large paintings that Ben made of Myron. He did some sketches, but not many paintings because Sukumaran was not Ben Quilty's muse, but rather his friend. So th there's a kind of bridge happening conceptually and I think emotionally in this room between the Afghanistan experience and then Ben meeting not long afterwards Sukumaran. Next room. A mistake about how that drawing of that painting was made in her piece. 
What's she say? I can't remember. Do you mean the self-portrait or the no, one of Myron? Myron, yeah. So it's directly from the drawing that I made of him. I still have the drawing. You yeah. can see that it's from the drawing. It's yeah. That yeah, it does. Thing. I can't remember what she said. Oh, do you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Is that any, what, how many people So this room I think is the for me it's like such a punch when you walk in here. The paintings are quite big and strong, but it's also about the wall colour. And this is Lisa's choice as you walk through the space. If you look up towards the ceiling there, it looks black. Your eye registers that that is black almost. But it's actually a really, really vivid purple. And the lighting uses the purple against the paintings. It's actually the opposite of cadmium orange. And as it, le as it leeches off, leeches is a good word for these paintings, slides away into a blackness. And I, I don't think because people are here to look, to look at art and in, in a way that's a curator's job to make you look at the art but you look at the art in this room and it's an overwhelming experience because the paintings are slightly high, you have to look up and this intense colour that kind of reverberates and you have an experience that would be entirely different if this room was white. Um, and it's really look brave, the Art Gallery of South Australia, Lisa's been doing it for years down here. All the other museums around Australia have followed her lead. People try to do this, but she's the best at it. Very sweet. Thank you. you the colour of the walls came out of a conversation that we had, like what is the colour of Quilty? I was really cognizant in putting the exhibition together that Ben is known as an activist, as somebody who has been the mouthpiece for various causes, but I wanted the exhibition to be about paint. So I brought the conversation back to colour and asked that question, what is the colour of Quilty? And I think it's the conversation that you could have with your students in really thinking about colour. We settled on the lilac, not because it's a quaint foil to the emotional register of the works, I think it is that too, but because it's such a colour of ambiguity, you know, it's a colour that's beautiful but is also a col the colour of a bruise. Andrew Sayers, the late Andrew Sayers, who was an incredible curator, described one of Ben's works as having a livid, L-I-V-I-D, palette. Livid, meaning both kind of full of angst and anxiety and anger, but also having that bluish, purplish bruise colour. And he just nailed it with that word for me because it speaks... It speaks to the entanglement of what you're doing in the work through subject matter, but moreover, what you're doing materially. And I think that's, f for me, when I was in the classroom teaching art, for me, that, that was the constant question for students. Okay, you're interested in that subject matter, but how does the materials that you're using, how do they convey that subject matter? How do they meet the heat of that subject matter or not? There has to be that conversation between the two, otherwise your work won't, I don't think your work will ever be successful. So for me, in being a curator, I wanted to bring that emotional intensity into the viewing of the work, really only so I could amplify what he has already done. So most of the paintings in this room are, use, are using a model. Um, 
except really that one which is totally made up in a sense. There was a model to begin with but the painting really is about using your imagination and I think they're all different ways to work as an artist. I, I'd strongly say that the, the, the least effective way is to work with photographs, from photographs. It's the easiest thing to do but you sort of lose the visual handwriting and that's what making art is about, is finding your handwriting. What is your visual language about? Um, the model often disappears into paint. Mm. There was a, a, an old man under this somehow. I think this is his foot here and his head there. But you can see that he's gone. The painting's not about him. Um, and it's an interesting thing to start a painting like that and then to add, to use the drawing of whatever the first initial visual contact is that you've drawn from to then cover it, even putting clothes on something or dressing something to then use it, use the original drawing, drawing as an armature to tell a different story. And we'll walk through to the next room. I want you to all consider, and I, I remembering that Lisa hung this show, I saw it installed when I first saw it and I walked with Lisa and walking into this room, remembering that the opposite on the colour wheel of this purple is cadmium orange and I thought, Lisa Slate, you are just a genius. <laughs> he wouldn't help me hang it, so he had to walk in and see it like you're seeing it today. Hear that sound? You thought you'd escaped it. <laughs> so we're just about to open. It's not going to stop us from doing anything, but just so you know, that lovely little quiet moment we had <laughs> is almost is almost over. So oh, I kind of want you to talk about this room first up. Well, cadmium orange. If you look at each other, you're, we're all glowing from orange from walking out of a purple room where you, the colour does not reflect off those walls into this where there's this incredible intense glow. Um, the works here were made after Richard Flanagan, Richard Flanagan and I travelled to the Middle East and World Vision had invited Richard to write a piece for the London Guardian in response to that refugee crisis to try and bring attention to the plight of these refugees in a time when Australia had just cut its foreign aid budget in half down to 21 cents in $100. Uh, and I, we found this ocean, this high tide mark of life jackets, millions and millions of life jackets, as almost as deep as a human on the top of, of these rubblish, rubble beaches of rock. Uh, and each one had been worn by a human and discarded on their way up the banks of that cliff into Greece and then on to Germany. At that point, Richard started sobbing. He'd cut a life jacket open, a little child's life jacket, and he was pulling a straw out of it. So it was filled up with a non-flotation. Non they were neutrally buoyant, a lot of them, which means that for people who can't swim, most Syrians, it's a landlocked country. If they fall in the water, they will go under the water. 
Um, this was made then in response to the Nauru files. I was handed the Nauru files. I sat there for a while, I have to admit, and then when I finally read them, I was struck by the horror. And these works are made as a memorial to the 12 lives that were lost to suicide in Nauru in the six months before the work was made. And those 12 lives are not the only lives. Yesterday, a man took his life in Villawood Detention Centre in Sydney. So this, to me, this offers an expanded field of possibilities for thinking about portraiture, because the power of each of these humans is represented through these life jackets that Ben brought into Australia and brought into his studio. And he positions these within the studio and works with them as models. So the object, just like the car, the Tirana, is the auto-portrait, the self-portrait, these all stand in for their subjects and I think are all the more poignant for that reason. Each of them carries the name of that particular individual and as such is, a, as I said, a memorial or a kind of requiem to them. The two portraits balancing on either side, you know, they're important... Um, they're an important pair, I think. The painting on the right-hand side is Ben's wife, Kylie Needham, and not to be confused with Kylie Neagle. <laughs> and uh, Kylie is an incredible writer for television and film, and she, Ben and Kylie, have very busy lives with their two kids, as you can well imagine. So the best way that Ben could get her to stop and be in a space with him was, so that, uh, was by asking her to, to be a life model. Yeah, and I made her wear my favourite dress and she had to stand in front of me for five hours. It was a fabulous day. Stop <laughs> moving and just look at her. Fantastic. Um, then obviously to imbue it with the darkness of what I was feeling, of the wave breaking on someone. It's not really... A, I don't use the model as this is not a painting of Kylie. I use the model to then tell a, another story, to have the human in it, that it's not always self-portraiture, but it's kind of about all of us. And on the left is a painting called Flowers for Heba, which, was, which came from a drawing that I made when Richard was interviewing a young couple who'd fled Syria. And on the boat trip across from Turkey, their four-year-old had drowned in the bottom of a, of a boat. Um, so the reason they fled was this tiny child. I realised that most families, most people fleeing were, were groups of families with small children at that point and they'd lost the reason they were fleeing, and it was unspeakably tragic. Um, the drawing was a just a straightforward sitting with this young woman, and I made one of her husband as well, while the other was being interviewed by Richard. Um, and I started by just simply making the drawing on there, and then presenting the tent that they were living in with the oil heater on the right, and flowers that I'd picked from the garden that I grow, as a sort of offering, I guess, a, a, a symbolic offering to that crisis. Um, I sat with the painting for a long time. It was a, a very realistic depiction of the original drawing. And then I started to feel that I needed to protect that person. The drawing was the thing. Um, and it was a very personal thing to sit with this person. And then I sort of covered her face with the way I felt about that emotion the trouble that I felt with it, in a sense, again, a gesture to protect her, her identity symbolically. 
The background of that work is uncharacteristically flat and once again this tension between the way Ben is making the picture and what he's saying with the picture is there, this equilibrium, because you've got this flat ground. The only thing that has kind of life, vitality, texture, presence, physicality are those blooms. So, you know, even this idea of how you develop a picture so that there is not this uh, even or overall approach to picture making, how you can cultivate as many marks, and you could look around this whole exhibition as a glossary or a lexicon of mark making, and that might be a really interesting way in for your students. Because in some particular works, you'll see Ben using Rorschach or decalcomania, you'll see him removing the paint altogether so that you've got a print or a stain, as you call them, on the surface. In others, you've got this very loose gesture where paint is loosely troweled on and kind of hanging in, you know, just kind of suspended. And then in the case of Flowers for Heber, your drawing, you can see your drawing at work. Good, so I think we should make our way, what we're going to do now is we're going to return slowly because you need to look at this next room and it's not so easy to talk out there. So have a look at the next room, keeping in mind that you will have time to come back later today so it won't be your last chance today to see this, the show. If you could formulate some questions, some propositions for Ben and for myself uh, or for each other, then we can have a conversation when we're back in the auditorium. See you in a minute.